0: This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of not even past and hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And my guest in the studio today is Sahar Aziz, who is Associate Professor of Law at Texas A&M Law School in Fort Worth. Welcome to the studio.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, and today,
0: uh, we're going to take a little bit of a different bent and not look at things that happened decades or centuries ago. We're going to look at something that's going on right now, in fact, and that is... The uh, Egyptian Revolution. And we have covered in previous episodes a lot of the things that led to what is now known as the January 25th uprising, which was the 2011, basically the flooding of Tahrir Square with people um, and the downfall of longtime President Hosni Mubarak. And these factors had to do with things like the population getting younger, unemployment going up, inflation going up, Um, as well as a complete lack of political uh, freedom on the part of the people. And the military stepped in, famously, on February 11th to depose, take over the government. And one of the questions that has come up a lot that I've never been quite sure how to respond to is, Mubarak himself was from the military. In fact, all of Egypt's presidents, with the exception of Mohamed Morsi, were ex-military And yet there was a lot of celebration in the streets when his own institution stepped in to take power. Why, I guess, is the question that comes up. Why why were people so happy that the military deposed one of their own?
1: So I think that's an excellent question. And the answer lies heavily in the circumstances surrounding this very unexpected revolution that was long time coming. Right. The first is The revolution, in my opinion, was not planned. It was not organized or orchestrated uh, in the same way that one could argue perhaps July 3rd, 2013 had been. It was... A result of a protest that was anti-Police Day protest on January 25th, many Egyptians thought nothing would come of it, and most of the organizers would eventually be scared away or arrested and detained. But what culminated in those historic uh, 18 days was something that nobody had anticipated, and so they also did not anticipate what would happen if they had succeeded right in some ways they endeavored on a project that they assumed would fail but they had nothing to lose in in attempting to revolt and so part of the reason that people were accepting of the military taking over was there was no one else nobody had been allowed to have a political uh, Party. The National Democratic Party dominated the entire country. Mubarak had structured the country in a way for the past 30 years so that, that there was no alternative. And any time anyone uh, was competition, he would either exile the individual or detain the individual, or you would find them disappeared or dead. And so the Egyptian people found themselves in this very unexpected situation. And they said, we actually did it. We deposed him. And we don't know who can take over. And so that's one factor. The other factor is at that point in time, people did not associate the military with Mubarak in the same way that perhaps we we make that association now uh, in terms of, of who was running the country. At that time, the view was the National Democratic Party and the business elites and the cronies and the internal security forces were more to blame for the oppressive authoritarianism that had taken hold of Egypt. The military was viewed more as a uh, national security organization that protected Egypt's borders, protected safety, but really wasn't engaged in, quote unquote, the dirty work of authoritarianism. And so they had a lot of credibility. And so in light of the fact that there was no alternative and that the military was viewed as not an integral part of Mubarak's authoritarian state, they were the Best and only alternative, and then the third reason why I think they were more accepted is people genuinely believed it was temporary, and th- it was revolutionary times, and they were perfectly willing to accept them for three months, six months until they could get a civilian, democratically elected parliament and president.
0: Well, okay, um, so now we have the military in charge, and one of the first things that they wanted to do was to basically throw out and rewrite the Constitution. Uh, Now, Egypt was nominally already a constitutional republic, but there were clearly flaws with it. So what were the flaws with the old document that they were hoping to correct in basically drafting a new document from scratch?
1: Well, they abolished it. Part of it was for symbolic reasons, is they associated this 1971 constitution with at least two dictators regimes, from Sadat to to Mubarak. So I think there was a political statement that was being made that we are going to start anew. We are going to start fresh. This is a corrupted document. The irony is that the 2012 Constitution and the one now that is being considered actually incorporates a significant proportion of the 1971 Constitution. So there is a disconnect between perception and reality. Now, with regard to substantively what was flawed, uh, the primary flaws lied in the separation of powers. The executive branch had tremendous authority to um, control the state. Uh, The judiciary's powers were uh, on paper relatively independent, but there were ways in which the president could, for example, appoint the head of the judicial uh, council, the judicial supreme council, which was the most powerful institution in the judiciary. And so uh, one flaw which hasn't been fixed even in the one that is is under consideration now is that the president could appoint the head of the Judicial Council, which then disciplined the entire judiciary and would find ways to punish uh, not necessarily expel, but at least punish and penalize judges who, when they had cases before them, that uh, would compromise the authority of the executive branch and they didn't uh, do what they were supposed to they could they could face some serious consequences, so that was one he had some influence over the the judiciary, the second was how the National Democratic Party was essentially set up to win the elections. That was mainly through the election laws. But the way in which a constitution could be amended was very uh, amenable to the president being able to manipulate it, which is what he did. And that's what resulted arguably in the 2010 most corrupt, most fraudulent elections that Egypt had ever seen, the, the parliamentary elections of 2010, which many in Egypt will say was really the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of Some of the established institutions, because the National Democratic Party literally brought in people from Cairo and Alexandria and forced them onto rural areas when historically that was considered taboo. They would still prop people up in in certain areas, but at least they would find them from within the regions. But it just they became so uh, bold and blatant in their corruption And the other issue was individual rights. So there were many provisions in the Constitution that provided for individual rights like freedom of expression and freedom of association, except there was always this clause at the end of every provision that said as required by law or as permitted by law, which was an escape valve so that, yes, you had this constitutional right to free speech. However, there was a caveat, a very large caveat that said, if the law, the statutes allow that, so then the president could use his dominance over the National Democratic Party to pass laws through the parliament that in effect denied many individual rights that were in the constitution.
0: Uh, And then, of course, there was the quote unquote emergency law, which had also been in place for 30 years, which abrogated most of those Absolutely.
1: and And that's another good point in terms of the 1971 Constitution, which did change in the 2012 Constitution, which was it set some limits as to the president's authority to extend it beyond six months. And, and after that, it needed to be subjected to a public referendum. So that was a significant improvement from 1971 to the 2012 Constitution.
0: So walk us through 2011. Mubarak is gone. There were a couple of referenda. Many of us will remember watching on the news, you know, the uh, Egyptians, you know, saying that they voted for the first time in their lives and knowing it it actually counted. And so we had a referendum on the Constitution and a parliamentary election, if I'm not mistaken. How then do we get from that to the Muslim Brotherhood taking over politics, or specifically in the person of Mohamed Morsi?
1: So the Muslim Brotherhood was poised to win the parliament because they had been the only political group, although they were not an official political party recognized by law until after the revolution, they were the only organized opposition that had managed miraculously and, and uh, admirably in light of these circumstances to survive the authoritarian state. They operated underground. They operated through social services networks. They were able to manipulate the system so that it was very difficult for the state to completely remove them. And they were highly, highly disciplined. So once they were able to kind of come out of the closet and formalize and become an official political party, they were leagues ahead of the other political uh, stakeholders, particularly the liberals, the seculars, the business elites, uh, the Nasserets, the communists, you know, the socialists, pick your, pick your political interest group. And one of the reasons why they pushed for the parliament to be uh, elected before a new constitution was drafted was because they were very confident, and rightfully so, that they were going to dominate the parliament. And through their domination of the parliament, they could then control who would be on the Constitutional Assembly and also who could become president. And then they would be shaping this new document that in theory was supposed to be the roadmap for decades, if not centuries, for Egypt, you know, to the extent the Constitution was going to actually have some legitimacy. So it was a very strategic move for them for them to push on in March of 2011, in that referendum to have the parliamentary elections and the presidential elections before the, the constitutional drafting process. So, In many ways, what happened in the elections of December 2011 and and January 2012 with regard to the parliament are not surprising. The liberals and the secularists and the youth movement spent all of the time bickering, fighting. They had no experience in campaigning, and many of them had such strong classist sentiments because they were rooted in the the cities in Cairo and Alexandria that they felt it was beneath them or not worth their time to go into the rural areas and campaign, when in fact, 60 percent of Egypt's population is is rural. And that was where the Muslim Brotherhood had its its foothold through their social service network that had been in existence for decades. So 2011, in many ways, was not uh, surprised for those of us who, who saw the different factors or, or viewed them. However, it was very shocking to the revolutionary youth and the liberals and civil society who are generally not Islamists, who had sacrificed life and limb and who had taken the risk to start the revolution, and the Brotherhood hadn't even started participating in it until maybe a week into it, to see that it had been hijacked from them as far as they were concerned. They got none of the bounty. They had a minuscule representation in the in the parliament, and uh, that was a first wake up call that democracy may not always produce the outcome that you anticipated and that you want and it was a big test for Egyptians to determine can they accept that aspect of a democratic system that you will not always win and that it's about the process not necessarily the outcome
0: so Morsi is elected as the head of the Muslim Brotherhood and then what happens
1: well, Morsi was a unexpected presidential candidate. If you'll recall, Muslim Brotherhood had originally put in the uh, field of candidates among the 18 candidates that ran for the presidency, which speaks volumes about the fractured political landscape in Egypt. It was Khairat al But the Supreme Constitutional Court found a way to disqualify him among nine other candidates. I suspect it's because he was quite a formidable candidate and he had a lot of influence in the Brotherhood, so the Brotherhood at the last moment put forth Mohammed Morsi, who was a very an unknown name in at least in in the political scene. He had been active internally within the Brotherhood, and he had a fight to the end with Ahmed Shafiq, who also came in at the last minute. And he used to be the head of the uh, the Minister of of Aviation under Mubarak. So ultimately, the election of two thousand twelve, the presidential election, was this. Very difficult choice for Egyptians. On the one hand, they had the Muslim Brotherhood, who they viewed as very unfamiliar, suspect. They had spent an entire generation listening to the vilification of the Brotherhood by the Mubarak regime as these stealth, secret terrorists that hid their uh, agenda. And on the other hand, they had Ahmed Shafi who they viewed as the epitome of everything they revolted against. And they had no representative that had any affiliation with the revolutionary youth or the liberals or the secularists or civil society. And it was a very difficult choice, and many Egyptians ultimately, or 51.7% to be exact, voted for uh, Morsi. And he came into the presidency on June thirtieth, two 2012, with no parliament, because about 10 days before he won, the Supreme Constitutional Court dissolved the parliament on grounds that the parliamentary election law, which had been amended under SCAF, under the Supreme Council of Armed Forces, unilaterally amended because there had been no parliament to pass it, had allowed for the uh, political parties to put in their candidates under the auspices of being independent candidates. They were gaming the system, which gave a significant advantage to the Muslim Brotherhood. It was already poised to win the two-thirds for the... uh, political party seats. So the Supreme Constitutional Court dissolved it and Morsi becomes president and he has uh, very little left in foreign reserves. It's been completely uh, spent at that point. The economy was in shatters. Tourism was almost non-existent and he had no parliament and he had a very skeptical public who looked at him with scrutiny and thought we gave you a chance because you were less worse than Shafiq. But he didn't have the same legitimacy and credibility as as one would anticipate from a 51.7% vote.
0: Right. And he was not a terribly popular president, even among his own party. Is he, that a fair statement?
1: <laughs> well, he certainly wasn't the first choice. I think the perception from outside the Brotherhood, I, I'm not an expert on the Muslim Brotherhood, but the perception was that he was a good soldier and he was a follower. And that created some problems for him and his own legitimacy and credibility because people questioned whether Morsi was the president of Egypt or Mohammed Badia was or Khairat al-Shater was. And so was Egypt being run by the individual who was elected to run the country or was he simply a puppet? And that created some popularity problems for him. But I would say that... He came in not necessarily unpopular. He just came in with a question mark over his head. But over time, he began to exhibit or practice the same authoritarian practices that Mubarak and his regime had uh, conducted, and that caused this already skeptical public to quickly conclude that he was not to be trusted, that the Brotherhood was not to be trusted, and that they were going to sabotage the revolution. The most critical, or I would say fatal, decision he made was when he first assigned primarily Islamists to the Constitutional Assembly, which made all the other political parties feel that they had been shut out. And the few that were in that committee, when they attempted to provide their input and feedback, they realized that it was not being uh, listened to. And they were just being co-opted and and, and it was a public relations uh, effort by the Brotherhood to make it appear that they were being objective. But in fact, this was a constitution that was going to be drafted entirely by the Muslim Brotherhood. That was the perception by the other political parties. And when... They were about to vote on this uh, draft, the 2012 constitutional draft. and At this point, everybody had resigned except the Islamists. The Supreme Constitutional Court again hit a major blow, made a, a major blow to the Brotherhood and uh, was about to. There was a rumor that within three or four days, they were going to issue a ruling that found that the entire assembly was unconstitutional and the way that it had been put together was unconstitutional, which would have brought Morrissey back to square one in trying to draft and pass a constitution. So a few days before that, he decided he would preempt the Supreme Constitutional Court, and he issued a constitutional declaration unilaterally as the president and said, I am above the law. I'm immune from judicial review. I am the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And I am going to Decree that we are going to have a public referendum on this constitution within two weeks, and no one can challenge me. Of course, there was a huge uproar and many protests and protests outside the presidential palace in which many people were killed. And this is now the basis, one of the basis for his criminal prosecution. And he backed off a little bit and said, okay, I will, this decree is only valid until the constitution is passed. And we have a parliament, but anything that I make in between, any decision I make, is unappealable. And at least for this three or four week period, I'm going to make these decisions. I make you cannot reverse them. And by the way, one key decision he made was that he replaced extra legally replaced the old prosecutor general, uh, Abdelmagid Mahmoud, and he put in Talat Abdullah. And this was a very controversial move for the judiciary because Egypt has a very bizarre system in which the prosecutor general, which is the key lawyer for the executive branch, the head lawyer, is actually a member of the judiciary. And so for the president to fire him was viewed as an affront to judicial independence. The problem was that this prosecutor general for the past six months had been obstructing many of Morsi's efforts to... Mm -hmm. Uh, recover stolen assets from the old guard that had stolen billions from the country and and hid it abroad. He had stonewalled some of the investigations against Mubarak and the high-level officials who were in jail, uh, but the investigations were not being meaningfully uh, conducted. And everybody agreed that this Mubarak-era prosecutor general was corrupt, he was politicized, and he was loathed. However, it was a matter of principle. How dare you fire him? He has to finish his term, and the judiciary has to be protected.
0: So between that decree, things eventually led to his ouster on July 3rd. What tipped that scale? What was the point at which the military and the public decided that they just couldn't deal with this anymore?
1: It was an accumulation of factors. I think that for the first five months... Morsi spent most of his time trying to make the best of a bad situation. He made a deal with the military and said, I'm not going to uh, force you to be more transparent in where your money is because nobody knows the military's budget. The military has, it's speculated, 40 percent of the economy is controlled by the military through factories and 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 different business endeavors and that's a very important issue for the military to keep that and to keep the benefits that arise from that. So he made a deal with them and said, "I'm not I'm not going to intervene and I'm not going to change or reform that." He also attempted to make uh deals with the judiciary but that clearly didn't work because the Supreme Constitutional Court kept pushing back and the other judges were very suspect of him. And once he realized that he had no allies anywhere, he had no allies in the police and the security forces, he had no allies in the judiciary, he had no allies among the business uh, elite, and he had no allies uh, within even the bureaucracy, and so he realized that he was going to have to make significant reforms and shake the system up. And the more he tried to do that, the more pushback he got from these different stakeholders. And the only stakeholder that was still in his corner, skeptically, was civil society. They were still willing to give him a chance because of their belief in the project of democracy and that he'd been democratically elected. But when he issued that presidential constitutional declaration and when many of the Muslim Brotherhood operatives killed protesters in front of the presidential palace in 2012, in front of Ittahadiyya, that was the turning point. That was when he had no one left in his corner except the Salafis, who ultimately betrayed him on July 3rd when they stood next to Sisi and and announced that Morsi was no longer the president. And so what you found in the spring is he was becoming farther and farther right and trying to appease the Salafis. And he had put into the 2012 constitution some provisions like Article 219 that established Sharia law, entrenched it further into the legal system that gave al-Azhar advisory powers over legislation which had been unprecedented. And there were many other changes that were subtle but could be very influential where he was pushing the country more into... Uh, An Islamic identity. Mm -hmm. And some could argue that was already the Brotherhood's agenda, but some could also argue that he was trying to appease the only stakeholder left on his side, which were the Salafis. And they were much farther right than the Brotherhood. So during the spring, what you found was a convergence of interests between the opposition and one civil society switched. It was much easier for those who were already predisposed to to oppose him, which was the business elite, Gamal Mubarak's cronies, Alat Mubarak's cronies, the judiciary, the uh, police state. And I believe what made the military take keen interest in in thinking or con- seriously considering removing uh, Morsi was Sinai. Sinai was becoming more and more lawless. Mm-hmm. Weapons were being smuggled from Libya and from Sudan. Many quote-unquote jihadis or people who I think are bona fide violent extremists were coming in from out of the country and and also congregating within Sinai and starting to openly declare that they were going to create an Islamic caliphate in Sinai and that they were going to eventually try to get Israel back and, or, or defeat Israel. And so with this accumulation of, of groups coupled with these military-grade weaponry And police were being shot. Soldiers were being shot. I think the military looked at that situation and realized, in their view, that he was not qualified to rule because... There were reports that every time they tried to address the situation in a militaristic, violent, confrontational way, Morsi would hold them back and say, no, these are Muslims, we're going to talk to them, we're going to negotiate, we're going to mediate. We cannot take this militaristic approach, you are exaggerating or uh, the problem. And so there was a significant policy disagreement. And for the Egyptian military, of all the priorities it has, I mean, it has two priorities in my view – one is national security, i.e. the Sinai. And two is keeping their financial benefits and their shadow economy. And he was willing to give them the first, but the second he wasn't as cooperative in terms of deferring to them. And what they found is this was the first time they had a truly civilian uh, president, who not only was not a member of the military, had never been one, but he also was a member of the Brotherhood, which had for decades been the internal enemy of the state. And so at that point, which one can speculate when that is, perhaps it was some it was sometime, I believe, in the spring, if you don't believe that it wasn't conspired from the very beginning, which there doesn't seem to be evidence of that yet, then they started to I think, communicate with the others. And I believe they were lobbied. I, I suspect that many of the opposition to Morsi, because they knew that the only way to remove Morsi, literally, physically, was through the military. And they knew that he wasn't going to give up power as I suspect most democratically elected presidents wouldn't. And so uh, ultimately, the, the deal was made sometime, I think, in the spring.
0: So just to bring it full circle, what is the difference between what happened in June and July of 2013, and what happened in February of 2011.
1: I think there is a significant difference. On June 30th, 2013, just a few months ago, people went into the square asking for new elections. And there were different intentions and different motives for participating in these mass protests, which some have argued was a revolution, a second revolution, and others have argued was a military coup. But I think what's important to note is Part of the motivation for one group of of the protesters, which were the civil society, the revolutionary youth, the diehard believers in democracy, is they went in there to express a very strong vocal opposition to what they viewed was a sabotage and a hijacking of their revolution.
0: And um, there, there was no legal mechanism to contest the election.
1: There was an impeachment provision in the 2012 Constitution. However, you needed a parliament in order to trigger it. Which we didn't have. Which we didn't have. And uh, in fact, I have written a piece recommending how that can be improved or reformed so that uh, that doesn't happen again. But... So people went into the square wanting new elections, but a significant number of people went in because they wanted to remove Morsi by any means necessary because they had never wanted him to win. And these were the business elites. These were the security forces. These were uh, people who were part of the National Democratic Party. And for them, it was an opportunity to have a counter revolution. And so what you had on June 30th were two very different objectives. And unfortunately, those who I think were the well-intentioned, the ones who did not want a coup, they simply wanted to correct what they thought was a detour that they believed Morsi and the Brotherhood had, had, had brought the country onto, essentially hijacking the revolution, is that I think they were used and, and duped by those who their true motives were to have a coup and to bring back the old system. From the military controlling the country, even if it's behind the scenes, to the very wealthy business elite who had been literally stealing uh, millions, if not billions, from the public treasury through corrupt means and through this class of, of the political class that was part of the National Democratic Party that wanted to make a comeback so that you would return to the old system, but you would have a new leader. You would have a new party with a different name but the same structure. And they were able to mobilize the people by vilifying the Muslim Brotherhood and Morsi as treasonous, as traitors, as terrorists, which was exactly the same narrative that Mubarak had used in the past. So what you were seeing was truly going full cycle and going back to January 25th. Now, one can argue that that may not necessarily be what will end up happening. We can only tell in six months, a year. But based on right now, uh, it's been about two three months since July 3rd, you have General Assisi, who is the de facto president. Yes, Adli Mansour is the interim president, but they just did a poll that 44% of Egyptians didn't even know who Adli Mansour was. Right, And if you ask them who the president of Egypt is, they assume it's El sisi And they want it to be El sisi And they actually are begging him to run, which I suspect he will eventually accept. Uh, and you have many of the political... Uh, leaders that were part of the National Democratic Party starting to now come back and get involved in politics again, and they will probably run for parliament and You have many uh people who should have been prosecuted and should have been held accountable, and they're not being held accountable and Finally, you have the first democratically elected president of Egypt in jail, and Mubarak is free; he is on house arrest uh he is in, but he is no longer in jail. And the elected president is now in jail and being prosecuted, and new new charges keep getting filed. And so there is something tragic, uh, at least facially, about what just happened. Uh, now, some will argue that this does not necessarily mean that a counter-revolution occurred. Uh, but unless things change dramatically in terms of how Egypt is run and who's ruling Egypt and the rules of the game... Uh, one can, there's certainly reason to question whether there, ha- there was a counter revolution on July 3rd.
0: Wow. Well, I think we're just about out of time, but thank you for walking us through what's been a couple of turbulent years in, in Egypt, and uh, we're going to keep watching to see where it goes next. Uh, thank you for being with us in the studio.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, we'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.